Macworld Podcast, special Macworld Expo edition for Friday, January 9th, 2009. Sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable spoken word content with over 50,000 titles. Get a free audiobook for your iPod or MP3 player at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. Welcome to Macworld Series, a special edition Macworld Expo podcast. I'm the regular host of the Macworld podcast, Chris Breen. This is the last day in our series of Macworld Expo podcasts, hosted by a variety of Macworld editors and contributors, featuring interviews with pundits, developers, and notable Mac users. We've got a lot of other podcast recordings in the can, and we will be distributing them in the next couple of weeks. But now to today's podcast. Hi, welcome back to the Macworld Podloft. I'm Chris Breen, the regular host of the Macworld Podcast, and I'm back to actually get to do a podcast here at Macworld Expo. And in the room, in the Podloft with me today, are senior editor Rob Griffiths. Hello, Chris. Who we who we may or may not hear from during this. He just happened to be in here. He said, oh. It's in the neighborhood. Uh, yeah, I've heard of your guest. I want to be in the room with him and maybe say something. And that guest is the uh, the infamous, the famous Tim Holmes, who, uh, you know, Tim, I'm just going to let you give your biography so so that we all know who you are. That's not an enviable task, I tell you. So uh, my biography. Uh, grew up in a small town. Uh, okay, so fast forward. Yeah, I'll fast forward right to the join B-Mug sometime in the uh, late 80s. And B-Mug uh, is? Uh, the Berkeley Mac User Group, which is the at the time the largest Mac user group in the world with uh, 12,000 members in 42 countries or something like that. It's since wow. Chapter 11 or Chapter 7 or Chapter something, thanks to the internet and various <laughs> other uh, factors. Um, and then uh, ended up working a couple different places around the industry and within a couple of years ended up at Apple and testing and then Apple and engineering uh, in, in uh, evangelism uh, for about eight years where I headed up the Mac OS uh, evangelism group um, for the last couple of years and then quit that in 2002 and started a coffee, well, took over and revamped entirely a coffee house and roastery in my hometown, now hometown of San Leandro, California. Right. Now, so you were there uh, in during the period of time initially that people sometimes referred to as the dark days yeah. of, of that, which would be the Steveless days. Yes, they were. I got there when Spindler was still in charge. Right, and, and then you left after Jobs I had left come after back. Jobs had come back, and things were clearly going in the right direction. And if you look at the chart of like how success has gone in terms of iPods and Mac sales and so on, if you look at just before the spike starts shooting up in the air at a, a really, really serious angle, I left right then. <laughs> right. Which, so, which honestly is fine with me. Okay. So, <laughs> that's it. I feel happy that Apple's doing well. I'm not responsible for them going away because I left. You know, a little. <laughs> are, you, are you responsible for them going up because you did leave? It's possible. Yeah. It's possible. <laughs> I, around the time I left, developer relations was being scaled back in an ungraceful manner, as, as large corporations often do. They basically yeah. let something they don't need at the moment. Uh, wither a bit, and then mm-hmm. the best employees tend to bail, and the worst employees uh, stick around or get transferred to other parts, and you end up with a demoralized staff and a very small, uh, very hardworking, very dedicated staff that doesn't have the resources they need to do it. And I left as that was beginning, seeing the writing on the wall, but also seeing that it was my role was no longer as necessary. Mac OS X right. has sort of taken effect right. in the sense that developers were totally on board and really plugging, getting their apps going, and, and mm-hmm. so on. But they hadn't yet all hit the market and so on. But it was clear what was coming. Right. But now, I know yeah. in, in, uh, in past conversations, we you talk about innovation and intelligence being part of Apple's DNA. And when you came there originally, you again, you were there during the dark days. And I think a lot of people think, well, without Steve, there is no intelligence. There is no innovation. <laughs> I mean, what, first of all, what's the root of all this? I mean, what put it in the DNA in the first place? And what allowed it to thrive when Steve wasn't there? Well, I think there's two sides of it. They're, I mean, and they both, they both tie in uh, very, very tightly, right? We all know, I, I, those of you who don't, go read a couple of books about it, but we all know that the hacker culture of the uh, early 70s really came a lot out of the counterculture of the 60s. There's a lot of social community, a lot of dedication to the betterment of man, et cetera, and a lot of that infiltrated into Steve's brain, obviously. We, you know, whether it's putting great fonts in front of people or enabling the masses who have enough money or whatever the case may be. Um, uh, but those are infused in, in Apple in ways that I think are sort of... Um, have been strung along through the last 30 years. You know, there wasn't a lot of that feeling in the 80s and 90s. It was very much not about community in many ways and in, in sort of what social pressures are being put on people. Uh, and I don't think it was in the early 2000s in many ways. But within the Mac community, within Apple, and those are separate things, but they both had the same impacts, there was a lot of that 
if I could really use the shorthand, 60s radicalism and right. 60s community, which has a lot of there's a lot of baggage on those terms, but sort of the positive community side, and then you know heavily infused with a technology that no one no one knows where it's going. Mm-hmm. Well, how sincere is that? I mean, do you, do you get this notion that that Apple really or Steve or whoever you know uh, has right, so that's the key question. that you know, which is yes, you know, we're all about helping other people, and then is that just a really great way to market it and they sort of feel like yeah you know we're cool we're hipper than the other people and yet when it comes down to it we're just another business yeah yes yes and yes um (laughs) you can't ask how instilled a value is in a company in my opinion and i know that companies claim they have values but they don't if you were to change out the staff that value would go away if you were to change out the top 10 people at apple 15 uh, you know i couldn't count them right now but 15 or 20 people at apple the top uh ceo is above you'd still have the values at apple right you know, not CEO, sorry, but, you know, uh, directors and above. You still have the values because those are the people that have been drawn to Apple over the last 30 years, mm-hmm. just as I was. I mean, when I was there, I knew people who had degrees in God knows what. The first person I met at Apple had a, gr- a degree in uh, 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 biotechnology or uh, marine biology, yeah. marine biology, and he was in user group support. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, was, this is not, this is Craig Elliott. He, he, yeah. he's, he's not, you know, I, I have an English degree that people around me didn't have engineering degrees, didn't have science degrees even. Um, but they were there because they wanted to do what Apple was doing in the way that Apple was doing it. Now, flip side, of course, is Apple's a shareholder-owned company, and there are a lot of decisions made that have nothing to do with the betterment of my experience as a user, right. and certainly not my experience as, a, as an employee. Um, and so it's a it's a bridge between the two. Is it every, is it every other corporation? It certainly is not. I mean, I not that I've worked in a lot of top ten, top five hundred, whatever corporations, but but they are not a caretaker organization often of their employees and their users. And, and Apple. Uh, is more than almost any other company, and yet they're expected to be so ten times more because of. The, and then that's the final point you made, which is because they market the crap out of that. Yeah, <laughs> they don't do it with tie dye anymore. They do it with other ways, but but the message is still very much the same. You are an, a, a, a countercultural individual who has values that go deeper than, and we agree with you, and we're going to enable you to get there. Now, is that pure marketing hype? If you look at the history of Apple, it's not. That's exactly what the people who have received that technology have taken it as right. and done with it. So, you know, it's all of the above. That Yeah, they market the crap out of it because it's great marketing, not because they're good people. They also happen to be good people, but they're not just happen to be good people. They're drawn there because they're good people. Right. So it's, you know, cascading. Well, and what I, yeah, what I think is interesting about that formula is that then people sort of feel like Apple should be their friend. They have all these expectations of them because oh, yeah. they're, oh, we're providing, they're providing me with this wonderfully friendly software. And I, and I have a suggestion that I'd like to make to Steve, and I'm going <laughs> to send him a personal email because I want this. And I, I think it... Apple resists this kind of bounce back, you know, that they have created this culture that expects things of them and feels like they're their friend, and then Apple does something which seems a purely business move, and everybody gets really angry about it because, well, look, look what my friend did to me. No one suspects it's a purely business move, first of all, because they don't, the, the, a lot of the people who buy the products don't look at them as a business. And so they say, why would they hurt me so? They can't, <laughs> they can't be making that decision because it's a business move. They don't, they don't, they don't, they like me more than that. They care more about me than right. that, which is, of right. course, can't be possible and still stay in business. And, you know, if it were the case, you'd see Apple decline, not rise. Um, uh, but at the same, well, but, but at the same time, those decisions have to be made, and I think we're all happy they're made. Uh, but the expectations are also put on by Apple because they present a flawless front, and they don't explain their reasons. Right. The, 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 you know, the huge wall of information makes you fear it, right? That's what our government can do sometimes, has been doing recently. And and it makes you suspect of everything that's going on behind that wall. Why would they hide this information from me? Why can't they share? They're my friend. Why aren't they sharing? <laughs> would you and, like to see and, less and, of that wall? Uh, Both as a, no, I, as a former no, insider and now as an outsider. On neither, neither side. I don't want to see that wall go down on either side. It's a successful formula. And there are flaws with it, but the flaws are the expectations, not the formula. It's, it's the implementation. Apple's implementation of some of that is horrible. Uh, the Steve Health issue is an obvious one, right? They were quiet for how long? How could you expect the man who founded the company came back to the company and essentially, uh, you know, to all outside uh, in, you know, uh, perspectives, saved it entirely from, from death, right. um, has a keynote <laughs> role beyond any CEO on earth, and then he drops a, you know, a substantial number of pounds in a year or two. How can that not be relevant to shareholders and people who have invested in the platform, which isn't just a shareholder issue. Right, right. I mean, developers and right. users have a huge investment in these platforms. How can that not be a relevant topic to the world? And yet, oh, I'll say it to some reporter off the record after I call him a jerk. Yeah, right. <laughs> what is that kind of strategy? It's, it's not, and I'm not sure why that stumble happens, but it's a, a major, those stumbles, and they occur occasionally, 
Uh, you know, I think they're part of the flaw of the larger picture, and it's a package deal. I think those are the problem, not the strategy itself. Well, and it seems to be that some of these things, like that kind of stumble, are, are very much a reaction to whatever Steve says that day. That things happen because Steve says so, and then the company is scrambling around trying to paint a better picture of it instead of... Steve said so, we have to implement this, and now we're creating a story around it. That happens with product announcements occasionally. I've certainly seen it happen in the past where he'll either yank or announce something ahead of what he expect, what, what anybody else in the company expected to do right. in terms of a release date or something he wanted to show at the last second. But, boy, I'd be, I'd be hard-pressed to believe that Steve releases press releases yeah. willy-nilly. Right. I know his press release people. They're the best I've ever seen, and they are control freaks as much as he is, and that's why they work well together. Right. And I, I, I really can't believe Steve just decides to put out a press release, and the rest of the company has to like fall back on their heels and say, "Whoa, I had no idea." Yeah, Steve yeah certainly not, to that, problem, not to that extent, <laughs> but maybe up there in the in the tower, he says, "You know, we're gonna do we're gonna do this. I've decided this. Like, I'm not gonna do keynote." But he does all these issues, right? So, I mean, I can't... I'm mo- 90, 90% of the, the decisions that come out of Apple have to be driven by Steve saying okay to that. So right. why are these the stumblings? Because it's personal? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe. I, I don't know. Uh, that, that's beyond my, my guesswork at that point. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a close friend of Steve's. And, um, Doesn't he yeah. call you? We've, he wouldn't know my name if I tripped over him. And we've, we've <laughs> had discussions in a meeting room once and in a, and in a public uh, question and answer forum at Apple a couple times. I asked him questions, but no, I don't think he's... A, aware of my existence. Yeah, That's, right. I don't think he needs to be either way, either case. So Yeah, I think one of the things that we um, uh, people have seen, and it's, it's specifically in terms of Wall Street, I think that Wall Street did not get Apple for so long. And now they sort of overget Apple, where because of the iPod, because of the iPhone, um, maybe to the iMac to an extent, they suddenly think everything that Apple does is gold, and if Steve sneezes in the right way, the, suddenly the stock goes up, or he sneezes the wrong way, it goes down. And I think so many people think if Steve Jobs left, that's the end of Apple. You think so? I mean, I think that there's a lot of depth in that company, and sure, I expect Wall Street will react badly, but I would think that the company survives because there really are a lot of very smart people, and as you say, there's a lot of this stuff instilled in the company culture. Well, we have history to look back on from the time he left in 85 when that was a really young cult- a really young uh, company of eight years. He left, and I would, I would put forth that there was a good, I mean, how long did it take till he came back? 10, uh, well, 12 years? 11 years? So. It was 86, 97. 11 right. years he was gone. Yep. And I would argue that among the employees, that culture remained throughout. Were they able to implement that culture? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, the, the, the top brass had no clue how to, how to drive the company. I, I couldn't tell you, their, you know, Gil Emilio's skills as a CEO, but I've not heard wonderful things in his past or in his time at Apple. And, and my experience as an employee during that time was not inspirational from him. Right. Uh, Spindler, same problem. He was very much a mechanic, not a driver, not a, not a guy who would really know where to go. I think Steve surrounded himself now by astoundingly, astoundingly not just competent people, but astoundingly um, appropriate people for their jobs. Yeah. You know, they aren't just, I mean, Tim Cook isn't just operations, and so so isn't just finance. They're really knowledgeable people about Apple and about the culture. And certainly the people that have been hired back, many of whom who were there when Steve was first there, whether it's Bud Trimble or others that, were, that came back in that time, or I don't know if he's still there, but he was when I, I was leaving, um, are, have that in culture, you know, that, that culture is them, it's not Apple. And a great deal of what is now Apple is people with that culture inside them. So how long does it take to lose all those employees and change the culture because, of, you know, the CEO leaves, we get, I don't know, whether it's Tim Cook or Phil Schiller in charge of the company or someone else that, that fits the role somewhat, but it's clearly not Steve. How long does it take for them that to trickle down and destroy that culture and replace it with something else that will not be equivalent? You know, right. It would be something entirely different in whatever it may be. Well, you can look at the past and say that it took at least 10 years, and we still had a lot of that culture then. I came when Steve was gone, and I, I certainly believe I believe in a lot of what Apple stands for and have a lot of that culture inherent in me. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve came back, replaced a lot of people, and has then brought back a lot of people, I would imagine, another decade or longer. And that is going to be key on that, that, that executive team that's left behind and how much they have really got that culture in them. Does Tim Cook really believe the way I'd like Tim Cook to, lead, to think about yeah. operations? Or is he following Steve's lead on right. how to be green, how to be tight, how to be... Does he need a driver above him who's hard on him that, you know, I don't know. I don't know Tim Cook from Adam. Um, and, but those are the questions that are going to ask it. Not whether Steve's still there, because Steve's still there. Right. He was there when he went away. He was there when he came back. He was just tamped down at the bottom <laughs> where all the people were that do work. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I would think, too, that Apple maybe has learned a lesson from... Steve leaving before, and then they just sort of drifted. I think. See now you're now you're assigning a um, 
a learning ability to a, a corporation, oh, which I am wary mistake. of doing. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, corporations are, are are not big learners, I don't think, either, as... Really? As, as time goes. Look back in our past. I don't think hmm. corporations... Well, they do learn, but it's more about efficiency and, um, and, and capitalism than it is about serving customers and becoming a better citizen. Right. Uh, let's go back to the history a little bit. Um, during your time at Apple, what was, the, uh, what was your proudest achievement, either for the company or, or for you personally? Wow, I've never even thought of that. <laughs> uh, my proudest achievement is has got to have been my team. I mean, specifically the people on the team and what I brought into Apple. There were, there were uh, varying times anywhere between 7 and 10 or 11 people that worked for me. Um, when I was manager and, and even when I was evangelist I was influential on trying to get the right people in the right places yeah. and, and sort of shape things I wasn't, I wasn't the manager doing the decisions by any means but I think that team was, was really really astounding people that I would love to work with anytime and I, I won't name them all because I'll leave people out and that'd be embarrassing <laughs> um, but, uh, but there are a lot of them and, and they were excellent and I'll name one John Galenzi who's now the head of um, the, he took my job he took the yeah. head of, of software evangelism and was also UE evangelist user experience evangelist for, for a while and does some of that still uh, Xavier Legro, uh, you know, I can name Jeff. Yeah. Well, I can name a bunch of them, but, uh, <laughs> but they were they were else. really astounding. And and I, it was a really hard team to build because evangelism is a very challenging role to fill. It is very much ego driven, um, and yet you're part of a team that has to work closely together on presentations, on technology work, on sharing the information between information you get from engineers. And at the same time, they're traveling, you know, 50% of their year. Yeah. So having a staff meeting is, it's, you know, its own little challenge. Um, right. And yet I need to communicate to all of them fairly re- frequently and rapidly, whether it's staff issues, whether it's technical issues, or whether it's, you know, uh, budget issues. Yeah. Um, which is all the reasons I don't work at Apple anymore, because I hated being a manager. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so on the flip side, during that time, what are some opportunities you think Apple missed, if any? Because, I mean, they were doing uh, all they kinds the of entirely. interesting things. No, uh, uh, <laughs> they were, you know, let's see, you know, I, I, not technology-wise, I don't think. I, 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 it's a topic at this show in some ways because of the, the documentary MacHeads, which is out. Um, right. And that is, I think they've always missed taking advantage of the community. They're, they are, I yeah. think, inherently as uh, Apple, the corporation, mm-hmm. uh, if I may break my own rule, <laughs> I think has a history and has a probably future of of wanting to control the message. And I understand that that desire, uh, especially as a small business owner. But at the same time, the engagement with the community and, and bringing them along is so valuable that I think it overwhelms the other side. Yeah. Now, I don't produce a product. Well, I do. I, I sell coffee. But it's different than a hardware product you walk home with um, that people want improvements to. Well, maybe it's not. <laughs> uh, I... I, I embrace my community as much as possible. I have a website that goes out that, that communicates what I do and what announcements are. I have after-hours events that people can do, and you know, and, and they're almost all community-driven. I don't usually drive them myself; I allow it, and so on. And some of them are not even there for most of the time, and they'll lock themselves back out as they go. And you know, it's very much meant to be a neighborhood space that's open for a lot of people to do things in. And uh, you know, whether it's you know embracing Yelp or or getting people to do volunteer events or doing election and pol- political events. You know, I'm about embracing the community and bringing them on. That's the real point of what I do in my, in my, in my shop is build a community space. So for me, I took on a lot of the community side of what Apple did. I came from BMUG, the, you know, the user group, a lot of people. I was, I was sort of representing that you know, in my head. I didn't, I didn't do anything professionally in Apple aside from developer stuff. But I think Apple's always missed that opportunity. In fact, I wasn't a... You know, I've worked, I haven't worked for Apple for many years. I can talk about this, right? I, <laughs> we'll find out. Um, I, <laughs> I was in a, mar- a small marketing group that Apple did that they pulled a lot of people from different parts of the company. This is not long after the Think Different campaign. Um, and they call it the Box Breakers Club, I think, because we were supposed to think outside the box. And they mm-hmm. pulled a bunch of people from different parts of the community. And they had a small one- or two-day you know, retreat. I think it was a one-day retreat. And then they sent us off on these tasks to basically invent marketing for Mac OS X or do this and what would be the marketing thing you do, right? And we all really had our own topics. Some people took the Mac Mini and produced a series of, you know, inserts for inside the Mac Mini box. You could always just pop it out, put in a leopard print and they had this whole, you know, and they tied that in with a a resurgence of the 1970s logo uh, marketing merchandise because at the time it was really hip to have 70s logo stuff going on. Um, And my group did a, a campaign essentially trying to use user groups and power users to sell Mac OS X to everybody they knew. Give them a set of disks that had a key on it. And every disk they installed that machine, every machine they installed those disks onto 
gave them a credit for some kind of points that would earn them, you know, I don't know, leather jack with an X on the back, a flight in Steve Jobs' plane, you know. <laughs> these are the ones we discussed, by the way. <laughs> we did. I, these, were, these were topics of discussion. Uh, and I think we put them on our proposal. And it, it actually almost made it. And the guy, I'm, I'm totally going to space on his name now, but he was a marketing guy from Volkswagen at the time that came on board. Um, and he was really good, but he... He, my understanding uh, from both hearing that he had tried to maintain his you know hour to hour and a half exercise routine in the middle of the day, which at Apple is kind of absurd, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that he left saying, I'm uh, saying again, I'm saying that that uh, it was a faster pace than he'd ever expected. It was taking too much out of his life. And he worked at Volkswagen for years huh. in marketing and yeah. did a fantastic job there. And I'm sure he would have done a fantastic job at Apple. But it was a totally, I think, a different expectation of what the company was like, what the industry was like, and it didn't groove with his pace. Right. You know, whatever that may be, I think he was an excellent guy. But uh, And he loved our thing. He said, that's the one I want to follow up on. By the time it got in front of him, uh, it had been dumbed down. I argued that it needed to be re, you know, re-amped up. He said, he's right. Take it that direction. And then he left. <laughs> okay. So- <laughs> Well, how has so that was commu- my, my effort at getting community? <laughs> well, how has community changed? Because in the past, there really were sort of this core group, uh, or we perceived them as, as fanatics. Yeah, we, uh, we that would go to users group meetings, and now that Apple has become so popular because of its extension out into areas of media and the iPhone, yeah, it's totally mainstream. I mean, I don't know what the percentage needs to be to call you mainstream, but I can't think there's yeah. no question Apple is a mainstream brand. Everybody's got iPhones. Right. Yeah, so. I, I was amazed. I was looking at Mac as they interviewed people in line for the iPhone. At least four people said, I don't own an Apple product or I have yeah. an iPod, and that's right. all. I'm like, these people aren't even Apple people, and really. They line. just are iPod <laughs> people, which, you know, I, that's fine. Yeah, and not that it matters, but is there a community anymore other than the people that's... Other than so- buyers, other than consumers, right? Is there more than just purchasers of Apple products and therefore the right. community? Uh, there is. Is it, is it healthy? I don't know. I, you know, the question is, was it ever valuable to Apple enough to make it worthwhile them supporting it? I, and yeah. I think it was at times because they were, they were experts. Um, essentially, but I have to question whether it was valuable in the long run commercially for them, and I certainly doubt it is now yeah. um, because it's losing the control of the message. They don't want there to be tech support for their products, right? Their their products don't need tech support. Right, Why would right, we need experts? Right. Right? That's always been the pitch. Yeah. Um, uh, there is a community, but I don't think it's the same community. I think there is this little community we have left that we all know each other, but it's been fading for years. Yeah. I mean, Apple's been warning about dropping out of Macworld for years. Every expo they right. got up and said... Every day at our stores, yeah. we have X number of expos. Every day. And I'm like, why are they here? It's not their schedule. They aren't going to release products that make sense in January. Who's yeah. going to buy January 15th? Yeah. I just spent all my money and I got taxes coming up. Yeah. I mean, it's been that way for years. They, they, they took over WC and started moving it all over the place so they fit their spot they wanted. Well, let, okay, let's talk about that. Um, again, not Apple's personality, but what do you think of, of Apple saying, okay, we're done now. No more expo. Uh, they didn't say no more. Well, they said, and it's been. I think that's the wrong phrase to use. Okay. They said we're not going to do Expo anymore. Well, although so, during Steve, uh, Phil Schiller's little thing, he said, "Well, here at the last Mac hey, World Expo, <laughs> for me, he <laughs> meant, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, he yeah, messed yeah, that Will he be back? He'll probably go to another one, right? <laughs> no, I don't know. Maybe he won't. But um, I, you know, I think it's sad. I don't think it's depressing. I, that's my my one of my friends uh, tweeted me and said, you know. There's no one here. In the past, I would have been really depressed, but now I'm not so sure. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't have been depressed, but I am sad. Yeah. It is the end of another era, and I, you know, I'm, I'm 42. I have gone through numerous <laughs> eras now, which is bizarre. Yeah. Um, and each era I'm in, I look back and say, oh, that old era, that was a cool time. Yeah. You know, I came into Apple after the, the big money spending days, and, and yet I was in evangelism for eight or nine years, or seven or eight years. I thought, wow, I was there for a long time. That was half of evangelism's existence. Yeah. Well, one of the things is strange. Yeah. One of the things we see change in Apple is um, is that they they pride themselves on having control of the entire widget. They have the hardware, they have the software, we own everything, and that's what makes everything we do so efficient and wonderful. That's starting to change. They're now having to deal with third parties like the music industry, like the telecom industry, as they extend out and become more than the computer company. Can Apple, I mean, they've clearly succeeded, but they've almost succeeded by continuing to dominate or be the loudest voice in the room. Can they be an equal partner with somebody, or does it need for them to walk in with something so amazing that they say, we're still going to have the loudest voice here because we're the most important player in this market? Well, I don't know what you mean by can. Can, uh, Apple, if Steve left, (laughs) he may may have a psychological issue with being an equal partner. I don't know, but, but I don't think it's wise for them to be. I think if they can walk in and be the loudest voice in the room, why would they ever want to compromise that position? Right. Why would you ever want to go into business with someone else where they have 50% or 51% of the decision-making process if you don't have to? 
Right. They clearly had to for phones. I think they're – looking at rumors that came back over the years, I would have to guess they were looking into making their own cell deal, that they would right. not be involved with AT&T or anyone else, like yeah. Sprint often does with Wald, I think they do, right? right? right. Yeah. Um, you know, they're still bending over for someone in some ways, but it's a different situation. And what they did instead was, you know, we don't want to bend over for AT&T. Yeah. So you buyers who get the iPhone, you can bend over for AT&T. <laughs> and, and, and I do. I, you know, you know, I'm not. I won't. I won't. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't know what you're allowed to legally say on, on TV and radio, well, but but, but AT and T has a reputation having cooperated with the NSA deeply, and I'm really deeply offended by that. Yeah. And, and it really pisses me off that Apple and AT and T have made this deal and it locks me at AT and T. Now you know, it doesn't lock me at AT and T. I'm being a consumer, aren't I? Yeah. I've chosen AT and T yes. because I really want the iPhone. I'm saddened by that choice. <laughs> it is it is one of my moral uh, uh, misgivings. Yes. That and San Pellegrino, you know, bottled water shipped from Italy. That's just embarrassing. <laughs> I love it so. Well, they had, and uh, although we have seen Apple compromise this week when Phil Schiller came out and talked about um, music on the iTunes store. They had yeah. maintained before, 99 cents, our customers get it, and that's it. And suddenly Phil comes out and says, oh, well, variable pricing, Sure. Because you've been selling it on Amazon without DRM at a yeah, higher right. bit rate, and point. so, and that seemed un-Apple like to me. Because as much as I like Amazon, I, I haven't, and I haven't seen the numbers. It doesn't seem to me they're that big a threat. That iTunes is still it. What's the cost to Apple? Who just compromise? I don't know either. Yeah. Did, was it a deal that they lost out on, or was it a compromise that in, hand, in the end worked out for them? I don't know what they were first asked for. Yeah. Um, but I don't think $0.99 cents and $0.60 cents or whatever the price is, $0.69 cents or whatever, were the goals of the industry, is my guess. Right. I think they would have loved every, everything to be $1.39 or $2 or whatever. Right? <laughs> sure. I don't know what the compromises were behind the scenes. And I don't know what Apple got out of this. Is it a 100-year deal? Is it a one-year deal? You know, th- this yeah. is that wall that I don't, need, I don't get to see behind. We don't get to see behind. Even when I was at Apple, I didn't get to see behind these yeah, <laughs> I don't. I can't criticize. I can't say that they that they took it, that they bent over and took it because I just don't know what the deal was. It does seem like they've compromised, but you know, you know, at some point you say, what's the best way to do this? They did get in bed with AT and T, and yeah. they do have one of the best selling phones in the world. They did get in bed with the industry, whether it was this time or last time, and they have the number one by far point to buy. I mean, like a, a, an absurd right. amount of, of, of sales of, of you know percentage of music sales. It's incredible. Right. So you know. Do you want to squash the whatever percentage Amazon that's getting away with it because of DRM? Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, it, it's what Intel would do. Yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It and would. so, and so, I think you're seeing that now. Do I think that Apple has become a big arrogant company? I, so far, I haven't seen that. I, I keep hearing that Apple may become more Microsoft-like and all that. It's different DNA. Yeah. I, you know, I've said this a billion times. Microsoft would sell you cow dung if they would make enough money off it. They don't care about the product, per se, as a company. And I'm not saying that yeah. the Mac business group or so-and-so doesn't care about their product. But as a company, I've seen those, those groups get gutted left and right if it came down to a dollar. And, and it happens all the time. And, and Apple doesn't think that way. They, unfortunately, sometimes think, how do we make this really great thing? And then they say, well, how do we make this affordable? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and sometimes they don't make it. And, and, you know, they, but, but they're driven by individuals who just absolutely adore the technology and the products. And and they drive it until they get it out and get it right, for the most part. Right. You know, that can lead to mistakes and can lead to over-architecture or, you know, or it could lead to disappointing results, but it, it doesn't lead to selling Kaminar. Right, right. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but before we go, um, you've talked a lot about community and your coffee shop. So where is your coffee shop, and uh, how can people find out more about you. it? Uh, it's Zocalo Coffee House, and Zocalo is Z-O-C-A-L-O. It's Zocalo.com, where you can find anything you want, and we're in San Leandro. We do mail-order coffee. We Not that the prices are accurate on the website. I'm a small business owner. Um, uh, and we do host a lot of community events. That's a primary thing. We roast our own in-house coffee. We have a, a kid's space in the back. We've got, we sort of try to serve the entire community from youngest to oldest and, and provide a, a bunch of different spaces inside. We roast our own coffee inside. Uh, we've got a gym space in the back that I at least someone else who then has a variety of classes that serve the community. So it's it's a whole breadth of stuff. Yeah, it, and I've been there. It's it's a wonderful space. You've Thank done you. a ter- tremendous job with it. And thanks for being here. Absolutely, anytime. I'd love to come back. Okay. Thank you. Now a word from our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable spoken word content with over 50,000 audiobooks, magazines, newspaper, and more. Take them with you on your iPod or MP3 player transfer to CD or listen right on your computer. Get a free audiobook through this special offer at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. That's www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. <laughs>
And we're back in the Podloft, back with Chris Breen, Senior Editor for Macworld. And we are joined by the Director of Personal Desktop Products for VMware, Pat Lee. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having us today. Thanks very much for being here. Uh, and first of all, I should uh, notice the people, we're going to have another drinking game. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be talking about VMware Fusion, but if we ever say Fusion without preceding it with VMware, take a drink, please. <laughs> Because, we do this. Uh, Pat, would you like to explain why we, are, we should call it VMware Fusion? When we actually came up with the name for uh, VMware Fusion, we were got through a whole bunch of possibilities, and Fusion was like a name we all loved. It was the code name of actually the beta. It was the internal code name uh. for the project, but it's a name that stuck really well. But that name has been used by a lot of software products <laughs> in the world. And I actually, one of my first things at VMware I did when I came was have to go through a trademark search of three binders of every software-related <laughs> thing that had Fusion in its name. and. Fusion wasn't really a name we could use without having to have VMware in front of it. Okay, oh. I think you, you may not understand this, but you said Fusion alone five times. So now <laughs> I'm fired. No, no, you're good. But no, just, uh, nobody's listening anymore well because off. they've yeah. passed out. <laughs> yeah. um, well, maybe we should explain what is VMware Fusion. So VMware Fusion allows you to run Windows applications side by side with Mac applications without rebooting. Right, and why would uh, Apple provides us with Boot Camp? Why would we want something like VMware Fusion? Well, it's interesting if you think that a couple of years ago, Apple said that 50% of new Mac customers were switching from Windows to the Mac. And while boot camps are, you have this, at the time you start your Mac, do I want to run Windows and reboot under Windows, or do I want to restart my, and reboot my Mac? So I can't use Safari side-by-side, -side, for example, with Microsoft Outlook if I'm required to use it for work. Right. You have to reboot your right. machine and go back and forth, and that's just not a, a great solution. It doesn't meet the needs, I mean, for most people. So what we found is a lot of switchers really want the ability to run the two or three PC apps they really care about that they've just lived their life in for five, ten, or more years, and run them side by side with Safari and Mail and, and iLife apps. They really came to the Mac for all this great digital lifestyle, but they've got a three-year-old version of Quicken that has their data <laughs> in it forever, and they don't want to change. Right. And being able to run Quicken side by side with Safari is a great thing. Yeah. Oh, I, I might also mention that Rob Griffiths is still with <laughs> me here, and he, he will actually be speaking during this part of the podcast because he knows more about this kind of virtualization software than just about anybody in the world. Um, <laughs> well, at least at Macworld. At least at Macworld. <laughs> I, I do want to say, um, say, you know, in the past, we were able to run Windows on our Macs using Microsoft's solution, mm -hmm. which was painful, just horribly, awfully painful, and you only did it if you really, really, really had to. Using a product like VMware Fusion... It's a joy. I mean, it really does run very quickly. Why in the past was it so awful, and why is it so great now? Well, the big challenge of the Connectix and Microsoft Solution Virtual PC was, it, first of all, it was a great product. Let's be clear. It did yeah, amazing right. things. But it had one big technological hurdle to face. Macs were running PowerPC processors. Windows runs on an Intel processor. So every time you try to do anything, it had to basically emulate a complete processor and have to rewrite every single byte of code to run dynamically on Windows. So it was doing a lot of heavy lifting. The advantage of virtualization, um, which is something actually VMware created on the Intel processor over 10 years ago, the first ever do it, was you're actually able to run multiple operating systems on the same physical microprocessor with a little bit of code that just is a gatekeeper. Mm -hmm. So you're actually running on top of the native Intel processor. So you're running at almost native speeds. There's just a small little gateway in there to make sure that if the Mac needs something, it gets it, and otherwise Windows gets it. And it's very small, very light, very thin. Yeah. But that way you get the real native raw experience. And, you know, most people, we should give them a demo of Fusion, they actually think Windows runs faster on a Mac because on a new Mac, Windows is much faster than any Windows machine they've ever had, most likely, unless they bought one in the last year. Right. And it's just an amazing difference. Yeah, and also virtualization has become a very big deal. I, what, the first time you were here on the uh, Macworld show floor, where where were you? So VMware, um, um, let's see, I started the company January 1st of 2007. Right. And uh, it was VMware was coming to its first first Mac trade show. Um, there was no name to the product. It was uh, VMware Virtualization for the Mac, codename Fusion. <laughs> um, it was in a 10 by 10 booth on the far left-hand side of the South Hall. Um, the booth was sort of falling down around us. It was <laughs> put together in a hurry. Uh, and I'm going, okay, this is going to be a fun show. So I'm sitting there trying to put the booth back together every 20 minutes. Um, and then, you know, we had a beta out. We just came out with a, a, a public beta two weeks before Macworld in 2007. Right. Nobody knew who VMware was at that time. It's like the, even though VMware was, although well known, on, the, in, on the Intel side, yeah. on the Windows and Linux side, the server side, but in the Mac space, you know, so what much. do you guys do? What do you, so we're just really getting our name out there a little bit and, you know, giving out demos of a beta and it's like here try this and then 
know, look at last year when we came back and one had just been shipping about four months at that point, four or five months. We were in a 20 by 10 booth on the other side of the South Hall on the far edge. Mm-hmm. But it was just like slam. People were just trying to figure out, well, this sounds great. Great technology. What do you guys do? You like these guys? Uh, and this year, you know, we come back and we said, by the way, we just won our first Eddie Award at that time. So we had this great Eddie Award to have in hand right before the show, which was yeah. great. Mm-hmm. And this year we come back and we have a 20 by 30 booth sitting on the front of the aisle <laughs> with a theater and they were just packed because people... And you know, know and love the product. We have our, I mean, we have our 2008 Eddie Awards sitting on the stand, which is great. So second yeah. in a row. Thank you all. And um, it's just been great. It's a great experience. And people really just are excited about the product. And we came out with version 2.0 about four months ago, which yeah. is really yeah. doing incredibly well. Great reviews from the press, like Macworld. Great user reviews. Actually, one of the great things that we came into the show was, was a week ago, um, Amazon announced its best of 2008 awards. And VMware Fusion was selected the most loved software product in 2008. Wow. And that's based on user reviews. They look yeah. at user reviews of all their products. The average user Fusion review on Amazon is four and a half stars. Yeah. I mean, users just love the product, which is great. It's been able to help us, you know, come from the middle of nowhere in 2007 to actually in 2008 being the number one retail Mac virtualization, according to MPD. We just found that out right before we came to the show. Congratulations. So it's great to be able to, you know, have over 50% market share in the market in less than two years. Okay. So, so you first came to Macworld, obviously, in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, what, when did the project start internally, and, and was it based on existing VMware technology? How, how, would it, how did it come about? So VMware's a very engineering-driven company, and then it's huge, huge engineering-driven company, and they love doing like special projects. And when Apple announced the transition to Intel in 2006... So a couple of guys internally thought this is a great idea. And VMware at that point actually shipped its first desktop virtualization product for Linux back in 1999. Okay. And then in Windows in 2000. So we've been doing Intel virtualization for a long time on the desktop. And some guys who'd started one of those projects decided to do a Skunkworks project. Huh. And he sat there in his spare time and just started trying to figure out, okay, we've got a lo- the low-level stuff that we do, the, virtual, the hard virtualization stuff, being able to make it look like a PC and the virtual hardware. That stuff's fairly portable, that type of okay. thing. But there's a lot of stuff to make it work with Mac OS. So if we look at the underpinnings of Fusion, it's really based on a really strong foundation that's been built for over the last 10 years. Really enterprise-proven virtualization. It's used in our anywhere from Fusion at $79.99 all the way up to our $22,000 ESX. I mean, there's a certain common codes across all of our products, the way it's written. And so it started off as one person building this project, and then another guy said, oh, I'd like to do that. And they got funded as an advanced development project. They started working full-time on it. And then towards the middle of... Uh, 2006, uh, they're really looking, okay, we need to accelerate this. WWDC was coming up. Oh, right. Um, I actually hadn't been at VMware at that point, but I actually came as an outsider and actually went to the VMware booth over, in a, over at the Four Seasons at a private demo they were giving. And they said, six weeks before WWDC, we're going to make this into a project. Huh. And so they sat down, they doubled down on it and put four people on it, and they just started bringing it up. And they were able to get to a good demo and at WWDC and said, okay, we're going to ship something by year end. Well, it's not fair. <laughs> it takes more time sometimes than people think. And so we ended up getting through the end of 2006, and the first public beta was shipped right right, right before Christmas. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was, it, was, it, was, you know it was, first of all, this is, while the foundation of the product's very shared, it was a complete brand new user interface built in Cocoa, and it's a very different product to think about building a product for a Mac user than it was building our workstation products, which are meant for technical developers and those products were the product we're building with Fusion is for the end user. It's, you know, we sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Somebody goes in the Apple store and they buy a Mac. They don't want to understand the word virtualization. We're throwing this word around. <laughs> yeah. But we look at all the marketing around Fusion, how we discuss Fusion. It's not virtualization. It's you're on Windows, Windows and your Mac at the same time. Because they don't want to think about these big terms. They don't want it to be hard. So we're spending a lot of time building a great Cocoa user interface from the ground up to really make it as simple as possible, which is really was the goal. Yeah. Um, so... Once it was, if you were to look at the product today, I mean, there's a lot of things that sort of astound me just from a, you know, semi-technical user standpoint. It's like, wait a minute, I'm running a 3D accelerated graphics game inside a virtual operating system on my Mac. Well, it tends running happily in the background. You know, if you kind of look at some of the cooler technologies in there, you give us a sense of what, what's the hardest or what are you most proud of? A, you know, what's like the thing you kind of look at, man, that was hard and we did it and it works well. I mean, there's some features so that stand out. interesting. So VMware was the first to do 3D in a virtual machine. That is really hard, right? Because yeah. when... When you think about 3D on Windows, you can say OpenGL, you can say DirectX, but anything that really matters on Windows is, is DirectX. Right. I mean, things like Portal, Time Fortress, so they all use DirectX. That's a very different, for a really geeky term, shader models for doing 3D than OpenGL, right. which is what the Mac speaks. Right. <laughs> so all of a sudden, to get something in Windows speaking DirectX, then have it to really take advantage of the Mac, we have to put it in OpenGL. 
So we have to write a, a very good video driver in Windows that knows how to deal with direct text. And then a very smart mid- layer in the middle that actually knows OpenGL. And so hand it through. Translating on the fly. Translating on the fly. Because we don't know what <laughs> you don't know what's gonna be an application screen. or game is going to do. Whether AutoCAD is going to try to do a transform this way or Portal is going to try to do 30 textures a second <laughs> doing this. And that was a real hard challenge. And, we, and then over the last 18 months, we've done so much in 3D. We, we shipped 3D, a basic 3D implementation with 1.0 back in August of 07. Right. And it didn't do shaders. So you could play some old games like Salmon Max. And it, was a, it was a fun thing. For, you have older Windows games, you could play with it. Right. But people don't. People want this. They want to play Portal. They want to play Team Fortress. Yeah, and, yeah. But that, you know, we spent some, the last year just really trying to make get 3D to the point where you can actually... We're demoing Portal right now on an iMac sitting over in, in the booth. <laughs> and you can play it at good frame rates on modern Macs with right. like an Intel... Not with an Intel graphics card. That's right. not really... But you have an NVIDIA Dedicated graphics card. Right. You're a real graphics card. You can really play good frame rates. It's pretty amazing technology. And to the user, they don't have to understand how many man years it took to get it there. <laughs> but it, it just... It works the way they expect. I think the other yeah. one that was that hard was Unity, which is... Nice. Unity's this great idea where, again, people don't want to... If they're moving from Windows to the Mac... They really don't want to see Windows around anymore, but they care about that application. So what we did was create this view called Unity, which allows you to basically break the Windows app out of the Windows desktop. So you only see the Windows application. You can minimize it to the dock like a Mac app, you know, copy yeah. and paste text. There's, it's amazing to be able to take it to the point where it make it look like a Mac app, even have drop shadows around it, and make it work. And it's technically... Hard. I mean, it's sort of frightening how it works <laughs> technically, but it's amazing technology. The amount of time it took just to get it, the details right to make it really feel like a Mac app, so it didn't feel like, ah, is this going to work? This is really, it seems like people just love yeah. well, that. Well, as a it's, it's now multi screen, right? Because that was one of the early restrictions right. was it was, I have two monitors, and I was like, that, bang that, the that, window on the edge. That was the biggest go anywhere. Especially the Mac market where. Everybody has, not everybody, a large right. number of people have two screens, yeah. two or three, yeah. even three screens, right? You get a Mac Pro and you can have multiple video cards right. there, you can have two or three monitors. And being able to, first, the big trick number one was we have to create a graphics driver that supports true multiple monitors inside Windows. Right. And then we have to map those directly onto the Macs ones, and it has to do the layout the same way, so you don't <laughs> want to think about going into Windows to change the layout, so it just has to, has Windows sees two displays, and, and again, a lot of the thing about we did in Fusion is... We focused on making it just work. It's like if you want yeah. to have a USB device, right. it works. We don't want you to think about it. you have to go in and do every single trick to make this thing work. And of course, not even, you know, we try it our best to make this. And every once in a while, we have to you know, be able to do some odd things. But the goal yeah. is to make it just work. Yeah. Um, I have a question that, that comes up a lot. And it's not just you guys. It's all three of the virtualization mm-hmm. apps. And that is, why can I not natively run my FireWire devices inside the VM? And so, I'm assuming there's a technical explanation because nobody can do it. So, so it's interesting. So, you know, way, the way virtual machines work is that we create a we in software we create a PC motherboard. Right. So, a PC motherboard has a PS2 slot to plug in a keyboard, or it has a USB slot to um, hook up USB devices. It has a USB virtual hub to connect multiple devices in. FireWire to actually virtualize is challenging from a protocol perspective from what the developers tell me is the fact that if you unplug a firewire device and plug it in it, it, the chain gets completely reconfigured so if you think huh. about how a USB device works in any of our products in Fusion in particular you plug a USB device into the virtual machine it gets unplugged from the Mac Right. it doesn't see it anymore even though it's, yeah, it's gone it's gone from the Mac so if it's a hard drive it disappears right. off the desktop and now it's only available to Windows Right. with firewire you do that then all of a sudden everything on the Mac gets thrown into a loop because it has to reconfigure the entire bus if it makes uh, it work. Mm-hmm. So it's something, you know, challenging. It's a very challenging, challenging problem. <laughs> uh, you know, it's something we've looked at in the conversation. <laughs> it's something I don't know how we're going to address. It just doesn't seem like, yeah. the, from a protocol standpoint, that... So it's a limitation when the firewire itself is making it so yeah. difficult. Well, I don't think you thought about virtualization when you create a protocol. Right. Very, very fast, <laughs> robust protocol 10 years ago, right? Right. When no. the first firewire device started coming out. Is that virtualization has to do some fascinating tricks to be able to take advantage of one machine sharing multiple things. But we'll continue to look at those things. It's just... <laughs> well, in the meantime, you just hope that your customers continue buying MacBooks. And it not <laughs> be an issue. That's true. I think it's interesting. I, I you know, remember Steve Jobs' response when they, um, they said they were going USB only, but, well, you can get a USB video camera right. and those things. And it's interesting because you think about FireWire devices. So a FireWire hard drive you can use in Fusion by using what we call a shared folder, right. which mm-hmm. basically makes that hard drive look like a network shared Windows. And it's very right. fast and performance. So you can use hard drives. So you can use storage. You have a printer, a FireWire printer, which some people have. 
well, with our in our two O release, we have this virtual printing technology, which right. basically allows you to pass through Max printers into Windows. You don't have to install any drivers again, making it just work. So now you can use FireWire printers. Right. You use FireWire hard drives. You can use printers. It's really one it's the device. Camera. Right. It's the camera, <laughs> and that's the that's the that's the. But then, if you were running on a Mac anyway, why not use your camera on the Mac side? Why? That's usually the question I ask right. them when they ask me that. When I go yeah. through, like, you can use this, and you can use this. I mean, you yeah, know, the other one I heard was scanners. There are scanners, people with firework scanners. Firework scanners. Yeah. And, and when I've asked the question, is like, okay, so if you use the Mac to bring the media in, but say, one thing like they want to use, for some reason, they don't want to use iMovie or they don't want to use Final Cut Express. They want to use Sony, whatever they call right. it, Movie Studio. Movie Studio, Studio yeah. movies. And so what I've heard some users do is they'll, they'll use iMovie to suck in the video off the TV. Right. And then they'll make that video available on a hard drive. They can be using the VM. They can use Sony and play with it how they like and then export right. it back. And, more work in the workflow, which I can understand why they want FireWire. But in the meantime, great USB support, new USB cameras <laughs> coming out, and uh, um, USB scanners. So, so here's a here's a here's a gamer's question. Um, so USB support's there, and it's very robust, and my steering wheel works. Why doesn't my force feedback work? <laughs> That's a good question. I'd have to actually ask the right guys about that. Um, yeah, I noticed that in the review too. I think that um, I, that, I, that was your half star, by the way. Damn it! I'm getting fired now. No, um, it, you know, passenger USB. The, there's a thing called HID, which is the um, right, human interface, interface device, device, device driver, driver, driver type driver, stuff. Yeah. And there are a lot of things, and we, we emulate HID to pass okay. things through. We have to look at that one. I have to okay. figure out why it doesn't work. But we did a lot of things like in this in the two O release to make it like. Before, you had to sort of figure out what the nice thing about Fusion, if you like using like Word or Internet Explorer, but you just move the mouse off the edge and out of Windows and automatically seems at least moves over to the Mac. Right. That's horrible when you're playing a game, right? <laughs> All of a sudden, you go to the edge, you're playing a game, you're moving the mouse right and left, you're quick and throwing things around. Oof. You don't want that. So one of the things we did in 2.0 was to make it so it would like automatically detect if you were trying to play in game mode, go into full screen mode. So if you went to the edge, it would stop. But, right. So there's room you could still work on yeah. around that type of thing. Um. Are there any things that you are working on generically that you can share? Like, what do you, you know, what do you see as opportunities for Fusion two point five or three or whatever? I think there are a couple of things. I think three D is the area where we've been spending so much time in the last year, and I think it's yeah. the one that people ask the most about. Like, how come I can't play Crisis? Right. right? When <laughs> somebody can play Fortress, I mean, you know, see Fortress, you can play Portal. What about Crisis? It's like. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so much of this really seems like it's game-driven. You know, from, those, that's where they're pushing you. From the high-end features, I would say 3D. And it's games. It's also professional developers. Yeah. If you right. think about things like AutoCAD, we, we hear more and more professionals. You look at the Mac Pro. It's a great engineering workstation in many ways, right? right. Eight cores, you know, up to 32 gigs of RAM. Throw four drive up there, Four drive base. And people really want to use Macs. And these professionals want to do this. And so, like, AutoCAD at the recent AutoCAD University... They actually demoed running AutoCAD in a VM and Fusion on a MacBook to their users. Huh. So, you know, we've been working with AutoCAD very closely. It's not just games. It's also 3D applications. Because right. they're right. engineering applications, like, um, they really want to be used as well. And, like, really making that ideal. So, you don't, again, it goes back to that. The real idea around Fusion is, like, you should have to choose what applications you use and where you want to use them. You have the choice. You want to run Windows apps on your Mac? Great. Want to run Linux apps on your Mac? Great. Yeah. Do it. It's all here. Well, I think that's worth pointing out is that it isn't just Windows. No. No, actually, Fusion supports 90 operating systems. <laughs> it goes back to DOS, which we always get the occasional question about, and I always hey. I'm trying to remember my own DOS days. There's no floppy drive on the Mac. I mean, you have to really face it. You have to work at it. Um, all the way up to, like, you know, you can run Mac OS X server in a virtual machine in this release, since Apple made its licensing change last year, and which is great. We hear it from developers a lot. Because, like, developers, think about an iPhone developer. You can't have more than one copy of the iPhone SDK. Um, installed on your Mac at one time. Mm-hmm. So let's say you want to have a copy of the beta of the next iPhone SDK installed so you can be developing applications, but you have to maintain your current product and make sure bugs are fixed. You have to have two Macs right now. Right. right. So install Fusion, install Mac OS X server, and two virtual machines, install the SDK in each one, now you can work back and forth. Great USB support, right. save with the phone. Those are things that people do, but yeah, we support you know Vista... Do, do you have any sense for how many, how much of your user base is sort of that hobbyist experimental versus the I'm a switcher, I just need to run Windows? I, I would say it's a very vocal 5 to 10%. <laughs> that's a good thing, honestly. I mean, it's really helpful to keep, you know, it's important to think, you know, while we're really optimizing the user experience for the switcher, there's so many, so, right. so many great power user features that we even sneak in here and there occasionally. Well, I noticed that 2.0, some, in, in the Linux support in 2.0, the, uh, has, has greatly improved some of the, the nice features. Uni- um, Unity mode, right? It's yeah, you, you can actually use Unity mode in Linux. So you can actually have it. Went, so let's say you want to run Firefox in a Linux 
appliance. So you want right. to keep your browsing experience safe, which doesn't make much sense on the Mac. It's safe to browse, but on Windows, <laughs> think about having to do that. But yeah. you can you can run Unity Linux applications side by side with Mac applications and Windows applications. All in Fusion. And actually, one of the nice things you did to help make it a little bit easier to be a hobbyist is that one of the things we did in Fusion One was have a thing called Windows Easy Install, which is right. one of the things about thinking about switchers is that. Most of them have never installed a copy of Windows in their life. <laughs> they bought a PC in the store. They bought it from Dell. It came with Windows pre-installed. If you've ever sat through a Windows XP install, it's not for the week. I would never <laughs> want to watch my mom go through the Windows XP install mm-hmm. without her and me on the phone. Right. So we actually had this technology at Windows Easy Install where you just type in, give it the CD, type in your license key, and then go away for 45 minutes, and we'll automate the install, install it for you, install the right drivers, restart, install the preferences to make it easy. That's cool for Windows. What about Linux? Linux, have you ever tried to install Linux? <laughs> Many <laughs> if times. Windows is it for the week. It could be. So um, it can be. Um, so we have this thing called Linux Easy Install. So for a handful of Linux distributions, you just give us the Linux um, download um, disk image, the ISO, and we'll just install it all for you. Install our drivers at the end of the boot. And clearly, like, you don't need the uh, no serial number required because no, it's serial Linux. Number <laughs> makes it easier. But like you can install Ubuntu 804 with it and just walk yep. away. 15 minutes later, it's installed with all the special sauce, the VMware tools that make Unity possible, drag and drop possible, and all those things. Um, I think that was also on my list. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you would want to mention about? How the week go? I mean, how the how the show? It's, it's been a great show, honestly. I mean, yeah. Great, great user feedback. Um, you know, again, it's like I said, comparing to two years ago, it's like, what do you do? And like, your guys are great. Somebody, somebody came by and goes, "You've made my life better." It's <laughs> a nice. great thing. To, it's a great thing to hear. And we've, we've been, our booth's been packed. Um, every day we've been doing. Um, Joe Kissel, who's a contributor yeah, here at Mac yep. World, actually wrote a Take Control ebook around Take Control and VMware Fusion too. And he's been at the booth every day giving a talk on it. It's been packed. The aisles have just been packed all the way to the back, which cool. is great to see. And so just lots of people. And it's interesting to see more. It's interesting to see. It seems to be more business users interested this year yeah. than it was a year ago. Before, it was, I think more the hobbyists, Hobbies. the single switcher. But now he's saying, like, I've got a small office of ten people. I need to use Outlook still because we're an exchange shop. How yep. do I do this? And you know, it's interesting to see that dynamic change. So, you know, it's great to see in the math market and see that happen. Right. Okay. So, where can people go for more information? I think go to vmware.com forward slash map. Now, taking the VMware Fusion site. Terrific. And the product costs? Uh, VMware Fusion costs seventy nine ninety nine. Right. And if this podcast gets up by uh, January fifteenth, there's <laughs> a show special. Excellent. Uh, Macworld two thousand nine is the promo code. Go to our website again, vmware.com forward slash Mac, and save twenty dollars, twenty five percent off. So you get it for fifty nine ninety nine. Excellent, such a deal. I'd like to thank the director of personal desktop products for VMware Fusion, Pat Lee, for joining us. And I think, uh, given the number of times he said Fusion alone, <laughs> um, I hope all of our listeners are feeling much better tomorrow. <laughs> thank you, Pat. Thanks for having me. That concludes this special Macworld Expo episode of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable spoken word content with over 50,000 titles. Get a free audiobook for your iPod or MP3 player at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. We'll be offering additional Expo podcasts throughout the week. Thanks very much for listening. 